Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. The show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Hey, I wanted to take a few minutes to tell you a little bit more about this mystery bird disease that's killing so many birds here in Kentucky and neighboring states. Sick or dead birds have been reported in six counties of Kentucky. It's Bullitt, Campbell, Madison, Boone, Kenton County, and Jefferson County, which is where Louisville is. And these six counties are not necessarily next to each other either. There's a couple here, you know, Jefferson and Bullitt County, There's Madison County, which is where Richmond is. That's in central Kentucky. And then there's three counties in northern Kentucky, up by Cincinnati. So chances are it's happening in other counties of Kentucky, not just these six. The Kentucky Fish and Wildlife Department is so concerned that they're now asking residents of Kentucky to take down their bird feeders to prevent birds from visiting them with the idea that perhaps it's bird feeders that are helping spread the disease. Well, I saw a great article in a recent Louisville Courier-Journal newspaper. It was from Sunday, July 11th, 2021. And they had some very good information detailing what's going on with this disease. The article is written by Sylvia Goodman for Louisville Courier-Journal. For instance, the question was, how many birds in Kentucky have already died of this disease? The answer, 1,400 dead birds as of July 2nd, 2021. But out of that 1,400, only 250 were positively identified as birds dying of this specific disease. The Kentucky Fish and Wildlife Department says that the 1,150 other cases of bird death were due to normal causes of mortality or that it was inconclusive about what killed them. Apparently, the affected birds have mostly been juvenile forms of the grackle, the blue jay, European starlings, and American robins but that Fish and Wildlife says there's probably other songbirds that are affected too. The disease first started showing up in late May of this year, and it has spread to Ohio and Indiana. And in Canton, Ohio, they are reporting five birds dead every day from this disease. And it appears that this bird disease is spreading It's showing up in Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, and West Virginia. According to this article, the symptoms of the disease are swollen eyes and crusty discharge from the eyes of these affected birds. And the birds also have neurological issues like seizures, and they lose their ability to maintain balance, which of course is critical for a bird. And who's investigating these bird deaths? According to the CJ article, there's multiple laboratories examining samples in order to identify the disease, including 
the U.S. Geological Service National Wildlife Health Center, the University of Pennsylvania Wildlife Futures Program, and the Indiana Animal Disease Diagnostic Laboratory, in addition to the samples sent by Kentucky Fish and Wildlife to the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study, which is located at the University of Georgia. And apparently in normal circumstances, lab results would be usually available in four to six weeks, although that can vary depending on the complexity of the disease. That might seem like a very long time, but actually there's a lot of steps that the scientist has to go through to figure out if there's a microbe of some kind, a bacteria or a virus or fungus or parasite that's causing a disease. First of all, you've got to find that organism in pretty large quantities in the diseased bird, and that would not be in a healthy bird. Then you've got to be able to grow that organism in the laboratory to get a pure culture. Then you've got to infect healthy birds with that pathogen, that disease. That healthy bird that you inoculated should then show signs of the disease, and then you should be able to go back and extract that organism from this newly inoculated bird to show that there truly is a link between this organism and the disease. So it's a very long, involved process. But scientists already have some ideas about what it's not. It's not the two bacteria, Salmonella or Chlamydia. It's not viruses like the avian influenza virus or the West Nile virus or flavivirus, Newcastle disease virus, a herpes virus, or a pox virus. And it's not the parasite trichomonas. And to quote this article by Sylvia Goodman in the July 11th issue of Courier Journal, Why should you care? Quote, Aside from the obvious desire to keep birds alive and healthy, birds can carry diseases that may infect humans, your pets, or other wildlife. The West Nile virus is a famous example. Mosquitoes feed on infected birds and then spread it to humans in a so-called mosquito-bird-mosquito transmission pattern. There's no evidence or reports that humans or other animals are susceptible to this bird disease, but regardless, you should avoid handling infected birds and keep them away from your pets, unquote. And what should you do to help? The Kentucky Fish and Wildlife Department asks that people put away their bird feeders and their bird baths, and they're asking us to clean the feeders and bird baths with a 10% bleach solution, then rinse it well with water and allow it to air dry. They ask us to avoid handling birds unless absolutely necessary, and if you do handle them, wear disposable gloves. And also keep pets, including pet birds, away from sick or dead wild birds. And if you do see a sick or dead bird that might be a victim of this disease, report it through the Kentucky Fish and Wildlife Department online portal that helps scientists track and study this disease. We'll try to provide a link to this portal on our SoundCloud and Facebook pages. But basically, if you do an internet search for Kentucky Sick Bird Reports, Kentucky Sick Bird Reports, you'll find that portal and you could report any sort of a bird death or illness that you spot in your neighborhood. 
So this mysterious bird disease is pretty concerning, and I just wanted you to know more about it. Now for some other science news. In April of 2021, researchers at the University of Washington reported an increase in the number of lightning strikes in the Arctic. Now, cold temperatures usually have a negative effect on lightning. That's why you don't see a lot of lightning in the wintertime. But by looking back over the past 10 years on the number of lightning strikes above the 65 degrees north latitude, they found an almost sevenfold increase in the number of lightning strikes. And they speculate that it's probably due to the warmer temperatures experienced in that region. And here's some news about the quality of face masks for those of us who are still wearing them or starting to wear them more now that the Delta strain of coronavirus is on the uptick. A paper recently came out in ACS Applied Nanomaterials that showed that cloth masks that are made out of cotton are much more effective at blocking viral particles than those made out of nylon. It looks like the wrinkles and the complex interweaving of cotton fibers slows down the virus more than the uniform smoothness of synthetic fibers. And cotton also absorbs more moist breath, which makes it harder for viruses to pass through the cloth material. Then there's this group of anthropologists from Arizona and Australia that recently analyzed the DNA from 2,500 people chosen from 26 different ethnic populations living around the world. And they focused on 420 protein encoding genes that are known to interact with coronaviruses during infection. So they analyzed the DNA for these 420 different genes, and they found quite a bit of evidence that peoples from East Asia show signs in their DNA for having been exposed to a viral epidemic very possibly a coronavirus, about 25,000 years ago. So people currently living in East Asia appear to have signs in their DNA of some sort of ancient viral exposures. And it's thought that these genetic alterations actually might make them more adaptable to future infections. And can you guess what the worst invasive animal species in the world is? Well, the magazine Nature recently published a list of the most costly invasive animal species in the world. At the top of the list are mosquitoes. Mosquitoes have cost the world $149 billion a year over the past 47 years. Second are rats and mice, the rodents. They cost $67 billion a year. And then there's domestic cats that have gone feral. And then it's termites. And then finally, fire ants. And it looks like the problem with invasive animal species is actually getting worse. It was calculated that the economic cost of invasive animal species doubles every six years. And did you know that people like to add rather than subtract? Yeah, some behavioral scientists at the University of Virginia published a paper in Nature on April 8, 2021, where subjects were asked to solve visual puzzles 
or to modify Lego structures by either adding things or subtracting things. And it turns out from 60 to 78% of the time, people chose to add something to solve the task rather than subtract something. So maybe there's just something in our psyche that does not believe that less is more. Apparently we think more is more. We just want to keep adding on. So maybe this is why we tend to have cluttered homes. It's just too difficult to throw stuff away. And maybe this explains why stores just seem to keep adding things on their shelves for us to buy. Have you gone to the store to buy toothpaste or painkillers like aspirin lately? Ah, there's so many options. It takes a long time to figure out what you're going to buy. And perhaps this explains why state and local governments keep adding staff every year and red tape instead of cutting back. And it's the same thing with the number of administrators at universities and colleges. They just seem to keep multiplying. Apparently, our default is to adopt the plus sign instead of the minus sign. And do you think yawning is contagious? Well, there's some recent research by a group in Italy who were observing lions. And apparently, if one lion yawned, the odds of another lion in the same group yawning within three minutes went up 139 times. Any one lion that spied another lion yawning was 11 times more likely to yawn themselves soon afterwards. And it turns out contagious yawning is quite common in animals. Humans, monkeys, hyenas, and even parakeets have been observed to yawn in response to other yawners. And what's the biological explanations for all this yawning? Well, it might boost blood flow to the brain. It might help cool the brain. It might help keep the animal alert. And group yawning might also help maintain social cohesiveness for activities like the rearing of young or communal hunting. It might be like a form of communication. And did you know our planet might be growing in size? We are growing by some 5,200 metric tons of extra material from outer space every year. Researchers got this number, that's 5,200 metric tons of stuff coming into our planet every year. Researchers got to that number by collecting micrometeorites that had fallen on the ice in Antarctica. They could actually detect these small particles on the ice. We're talking particles less than one hundredth of an inch in size. That's a third of a millimeter. Real small. Assuming that an equivalent amount of material is probably following to all the places on Earth, the researchers extrapolated from the smaller collection site to the rest of the world. And that's how they estimated 5,200 metric tons of extraterrestrial material falling to Earth every year. Most of this material is left over from nearby comets, or it's the debris from collisions in the asteroid belt. So, look out from above! What about these new dinosaur bones discovered in northeastern China in 2019? They recently performed micro-cat scans of the bones, 
and the bones are still embedded in rock, actually. And it was discovered that this dinosaur species had opposable thumbs that would have allowed it to climb trees when it was alive some 160 million years ago. Now, opposable thumbs are not really that unusual. Of course, all of the great apes have opposable thumbs, like humans, gorillas, and chimpanzees. But so do marsupial animals like the koalas and pandas. And then there's a few frog species and bird species that have opposable thumbs, too. But it's still pretty interesting that this dinosaur species also had opposable thumbs. Hey, there was a provocative essay in a recent issue of Scientific American I wanted to tell you about. The title of the essay was, Denial of Evolution is a Form of White Supremacy. And it was written by Allison Hopper and published in the July 5th, 2021 issue of Scientific American. Allison Hopper is a filmmaker and designer with a master's degree in educational design from New York University. Earlier in her career, she apparently worked on PBS documentaries, but more recently she's been creating content for young people on the topic of evolution. And she starts with the following statement, and I hate it when people read verbatim on the radio, so I'm going to put on my best acting chops here. She says, quote, The global scientific community overwhelmingly accepts that all living humans are of African descent. Most scientific articles about our African origins focus on genetics, but the part of the story that is not widely shared is about the creation of human culture. We are all descended genetically and also culturally from dark-skinned ancestors. Early humans from the African continent are the ones who first invented tools, first used fire, language, and religion. These dark-skinned early people laid down the foundation for human culture. And considering the short lifespan of our early ancestors, these original innovators were probably also very young. No one who follows artistic trends will be surprised to learn that, from the beginning, human culture was essentially invented by teenagers. And by culture, I don't mean the arts, I mean the whole shebang. And she goes further to say, I want to unmask the lie that evolution denial is about religion, and recognize that at its core, it's a form of white supremacy that perpetuates segregation and violence against black bodies. Under the guise of religious freedom, the legalistic wing of creationists loudly insists that their point of view deserves equal time in the classroom. Science education in the U.S. is constantly on the defense against anti-evolution activists who want biblical stories to be taught as fact, unquote. So that's the thesis of Alison Hopper's piece, that the people who are basically against the teaching of Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection are coming from a white supremacist perspective, and that racism is behind the attacks on the teaching of evolution. Now, she doesn't provide a ton of evidence for this, but does point out that it was the Ku Klux Klan that originally opposed the teaching of evolution back in the 1920s. 
The KKK actively supported William Jennings Bryan, who argued the anti-evolution position during the infamous Scopes Monkey Trial. She writes, and I'll quote again, At the heart of white evangelical creationism is the mythology of an unbroken white lineage that stretches back to a light-skinned Adam and Eve. In literal interpretations of the Christian Bible, white skin was created in God's image. Dark skin has a different, more problematic origin. As the biblical story goes, the curse or mark of Cain for killing his brother was a darkening of his descendant's skin. Historically, many congregations in the U.S. pointed to the story of Cain as evidence that black skin was created as a punishment, unquote. Now, the statistics vary, but it looks like up to 40% of Americans believe that the physical human form has not changed over time and that we belong to an unbroken lineage dating back to Adam and Eve. 67% of biology school teachers, however, instruct their students in the Darwinian explanation for biodiversity without presenting a creationist alternative. But there are still lots of textbooks out there that tone down their emphasis on their discussion of Darwin. This author thinks that textbook publishers might be afraid that this would hurt sales of their textbooks. So publishers might be trying to present a more, quote, balanced perspective on creationism versus Darwinism. She points out, for instance, that while there's hundreds of children's books about chemistry and astronomy and other non-controversial science topics, that there are only about 15 children's books on the topic of evolution. And apparently there are hundreds of children's books that present a creationist biblical story of the origin of humans. And as further example, she mentions the two museums here in Kentucky, the Creationism Museum and the Noah's Ark Museum, as evidence that children are getting too much of a one-sided view of human origins. And that would be a non-scientific view. And to quote the author again, quote, And yet, even in the current literature about human origins that we do have, the end point of evolution is often depicted as a white man carrying a spear. This image not only eliminates our African heritage, but also erases women and children from the picture. Because evolution is foundational knowledge, we need the story to be told in many different ways by many different voices, unquote. And the author finishes her essay by saying, quote, as we move forward to undo systemic racism in every aspect of business, society, academia, and life, let's be sure to do so in science education as well. Embracing humanity's dark-skinned ancestors with love and respect is key to changing our relationship to the past and to creating racial equity in the present. These ancient people made the rest of us possible, opening our hearts to them and embracing them as heroic, fully human, and worthy of our respect is part of the process of healing 
from our racist history, unquote. Now, from my own perspective on this essay, I agree with the author that there probably is a historical link between racism and the effort to downplay the Darwinian explanation for biodiversity and human evolution, but I'm hesitant to claim that all creationists are, in fact, white supremacists. There are other reasons for being a creationist that other analysts have pointed out, like Harvard paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould. He points out that one reason there is so much criticism over the concept of Darwinian evolution is that this is an entirely mechanistic view of the world. Darwin does not require a god or a creator, and that mechanistic view of the world upsets a lot of folks. But of course, that's true for all of science. It's a principal foundation of the scientific method, this assumption that the world operates like a machine and that we can do experiments and make observations to learn how that machine works. Scientists don't just throw their hands up in the air and assume that they can never learn the answers to their questions. They try to figure stuff out without looking for a religious or spiritual explanation. That's the difference between science and theology. And secondly, another major criticism about evolution is Darwin's speculation that humans belong to the same phylogenetic group as animals like chimpanzees, orangutans, and gorillas. We're all part of the great apes phyla. And this is quite offensive to many people. Of course, it might also be offensive to chimps, orangutans, and gorillas. I don't know. So I don't know if it's fair to say that anyone who is a creationist and doesn't believe in evolution is automatically a racist. But I did want you to know about this essay. It's called Denial of Evolution is a Form of White Supremacy. And it was written by Alison Hopper, published in the July 5th, 2021 issue of Scientific America. We'll post a link to this article on our Facebook page, so see that if you want to read the whole article. She does give us something to think about. Not only might racists be looking to biblical stories rather than science for affirmation of white supremacist viewpoints, but even scientists themselves might be too quick to ignore or minimize the African roots that all Homo sapiens most certainly have. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, 
www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.